Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is David Rothkopf. Welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am here in New York City. In our studio in Washington, D.C., we have Laura Rosenberger, who is the director for the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. We also have Susan Glasser, who's the chief international columnist at Politico. Somewhere else, I'm not exactly sure where, we have Rosa Brooks, who is our reigning uh, pessimist, also the associate dean of the Georgetown School of Law, and out at Stanford University. University, where I understand the Stanford uh, team uh, won a big football game this weekend, so um, <laughs> has brought a lot of joy to all the nerds out in Stanford. Um, Absolutely, uh, we, ha- we have we have Corey Shockey. What is the what is the Stanford team called? They have like a tree on the side. What are they like? The Stanford pine trees, or I mean, what is the we, name? Of the- we our cardinals. Is the color cardinal, not the oh, bird, the color. And it was selected in the late 1970s when we used to be the Stanford Indians. And when people finally caught the hint that that was defamatory, uh, the student so body So you just was, went with red The student body of was Indian. asked what, what they wanted as the mascot. And in commemoration of a college founded by railroad baron Leland Stanford, we wanted to be the Monopoly money man. But the trustees considered that uh, too irreverent. And as a protest vote, Stanford students took the color cardinal rather than play by the rules that the trustees established. Wow. That's a lot more information than I wanted on that. Well, don't ask then, David. (laughs) (laughs) But I also know for you, Corey, it must pose a deep conflict since (laughs) you actually like the real cardinals, which are named after (laughs) birth. That is exactly right. I'm a desperate St. Louis Cardinals fan, and I am weeping this October at the mediocre play this season of my ball club. Well, imagine how hard it is for those of us who are Patriots fans who've actually watched the Patriots <laughs> lose twice so far this year. It's, it's very I'm hard. Sorry. It's okay. You can I'm come over to the Steelers. I mean, we are a very welcoming fan base. I would sooner vote for Trump. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> it, it's okay, David. I expect that from you. No principles. Yeah, no, I no, I I understand that, but I'm really rethinking whether I should stick with the Tom Brady diet. In any <laughs> event, um, now that we've gotten this important stuff aside, you know, one of the things that has happened in the past several days that I think is probably worthy of some broader reflection is that there was a vote in Catalonia um, to consider the issue of secession. It followed by a few days, a similar vote uh, in Kurdistan. Um, and the, the vote 
did not go well. The government in Madrid cracked down. There are videos of truly innocent protesters holding up their arms and saying, we're not doing anything and having the police rush in and and beat them with, with nightsticks. Uh, 800 or 1,000 people were injured in this process. Uh, at the same time, you know, there are other groups like this that um, seek uh, potentially their own self-determination, including uh, the Scots, the Palestinians, the Kashmiris, uh, and even, Corey, those of you out in California. Um, and so it raises this issue of self-determination back again, right? It puts it right at the center of the discussion, a lot of political affairs. And, and I see a lot of contradictions and hypocrisy in this, where people say, oh, I support this here, but not there. Um, and so I just thought it would be good, since we have such a distinguished group, and let me start with you, Susan, to consider the underlying principles here um, and, 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 and really you know, where people should be coming out on an issue like self-determination in the light of this. Do the people of, of Catalonia or do the people of Kurdistan have a right to determine what country they're in? Or do the people of the broader nation state have a right to assert sovereignty and say, no, you can't go? Well, you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, right, uh, you can find two examples of anything uh, in the world. So how much of a connection is there really between Catalonia and Kurdistan beyond the fact that they occurred in the same week by coincidence. But that being said, I actually do think it it reflects a little bit about where we are in the world, that integration was seen uh, until the last few years as sort of the, the one of the inexorable trends of our time. And now you have almost the exact opposite sort of feeling of unraveling, of fragmenting, uh, a fragmenting that has occurred in media, for example, that's occurred uh, uh, in in business, that's occurred in uh, almost everything as a result of this enormous sort of technology disruption. So why not fragmenting of our states, fragmenting of our former empires? And you know, it's in that context that that I wonder whether this represents uh, uh, something broader than just what's happening in Catalonia and in Kurdistan, which, as, as you said, have their own histories that go back hundreds of years, that have their own narratives around uh, why is there such a thing? Why are the Kurds in uh, Iraq different uh, and not always even aligned with the Kurds in Syria, for example? What you know, I mean, once you delve into the specifics of each of these unhappy families, they're you know unhappy in such a different way than all others. It's 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 not just a Tolstoy novel; it's a really long one, you know. And so uh, before you you can dive really really deeply into Kurdistan and not come out convinced that it tells you anything broader except about Kurds, you know. Uh, but I actually do, I do think that there is a, this feels like a moment when things fall apart. Laura, what's your take on this? So I want to pick up on one of the points that you mentioned about um, the hypocrisy of certain actors um, involved here. And one of the things I just sort of zooming in on Catalonia for a moment, um, one of the interesting dynamics that we've we saw unfold here um, and and um, Susan's publication has has done some good work on this. Um, and and the organization that I run has also done some work on this um, is actually that the Russians decided to get involved here and play in this space. And decided that um, through some of the same kind of social media um, efforts, um, as well as through some of their more overt 
um, RT Sputnik kind of channels um, to basically fan the flames of of separatism in Catalonia. We also saw sort you know our favorite Russian linked friends um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks getting in on the game here. And I think that it's a really important point to think in the broader context again of what, where does this fit in the sort of broader geopolitical direction? I mean, Russia, this plays to Russia's advantage in two ways. Um, one is they would like to see, you know, weakened European states, a weakened EU. And so the more you can carve up and split off parts of states, the more that plays to Russia's advantage. It also fits the narrative that Russia has tried to um, deploy with respect to Crimea, um, as well as parts of eastern Ukraine, um, that this is really just about self-determination and Russia safeguarding these ethnic Russians um, for, you know, their um, ability to determine their own history here. Now, the, the hypocrisy comes in if you were to ask Russia about, you know, let's say a referendum, an independence referendum for Chechnya. Um, I think they'd have a really different answer there. And, um, you know, I think that that it's really interesting when, when these principles come into play and into conflict. But I think it's also just really important to bear in mind that in a in addition to um, some of the forces within these um, er- areas that are having these referenda, um, you also have outside actors that are seeking to play in that space and take advantage of it for one reason or another. Well, wait a minute. Rosa, you're a constitutional scholar for the moment. Um, do, do, do we actually have something in the Constitution that talks about uh, inalienable rights unless those rights are supported by Russia? <laughs> Actually, no, the Constitution is silent on that question, David. Um, <laughs> the Bill of Rights does say something about unalienable rights, though. It doesn't say yeah. anything at all about Russia. All um, right. Well, but but you get to, you get my point. Uh, it's no, no. wrapped in the snark there. The, the reality is, you know, self-determination is a principle that's been a fundamental well, principle. Yes and no. I mean, okay, when it comes well. to international law, it's it's actually pretty murky and um, ambiguous. Uh, the right to the to the minimal extent that courts have directly addressed the issue of whether there is there a right to self determination, they usually say yes. But the question of what that means, uh, they do not always come out in the same place on that. And what they generally tend to say, and this is what uh, both various national and international courts have said, uh, from uh, Canada addressing the Cape Bequa issue to international courts addressing this in the context of, of, other, of other places, have said the right to self-determination involves some right to autonomy, which may, however, be primarily linguistic or cultural or, or economic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a right to be a separate sovereign state in the international system. Um, so, so, you know, in, in other words, you sort of say it's, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Spain doesn't get to go tough luck, Catalonia, just do speak Spanish and shut up and stop whining. That Spain is supposed to take seriously the fact that there is a uh, discernible, historically based culture that has different interests and so forth. Um, but, but I don't, you know, the, the international system is strongly biased in favor of stability and in favor of states. Uh, and there's certainly, I don't think anybody would say that there is any internationally recognized right to break away and form your own country. That, be, and that being said, Spain's handling of the referendum was, was catastrophically awful and horrific in a zillion possible ways. It seems to be kind of an interesting uh, 
concept, uh, Corey, in the sense that, you know, if you look at the world post, say, World War II, uh, most of the countries in the world were formed by breaking away from a prior system. Uh, and in fact, our country was formed by breaking away from a prior system under, a, you know, a sovereign uh, that we now hold in some high regard. I, we we tend to be pretty selective about this, don't we? I mean, we you know, to the victor goes the ability to determine self determination, and everybody else has just got to shut the fuck up. I mean, what you know, what's what what what's your view there out in secessionist California? <laughs> I don't think the great golden state of California is secessionist from our union, uh, but I do have a slightly different view um, than those already expressed, which is, I think uh, breakaway regions ought to be encouraged to hold referenda, and I think states ought to put a whole lot of effort into winning the referenda. Um, so that is, the, the model shouldn't be Brexit and everything coming to an end, which was stupid and selfish of the Cameron government to have set in motion, and then stupid and selfish and unself-regarding of them not to win it. But think about the Scot. Think about Scotland's referendum, where Britain made a supremely sensible set of choices, which is to say, uh, you know that that this that they will not hold Scotland by force. And they rolled their sleeves up and did the economic analysis and started a conversation about uh, the net benefits that Scotland gets from the central British Treasury and what are you going to do when the oil in the North Sea runs out and how are you going to manage all these other problems. I don't. I think one of the ways in which the government of Spain erred on the side of international law, which is you don't have a state unless you have the ability to make it independent, um, and we're not going to let you do this, Catalonia, um, instead of saying we think Catalonia is Spain, and here are the 145 good reasons why, and here are the challenges you are going to face if it ceases to be the case. Um, there, there is actually no substitute mm -hmm. for winning the argument in these cases. Well, isn't that sort of a fundamental concept of democracy, mm. that the people within the democracy empower the democracy, and if the democracy ceases to serve the people, then the people have other options available to them? Absolutely, this is what the whole Declaration of Independence <laughs> focuses on. Right, so let's- and but. Yeah, exactly. And but I, I think that's an important point that, that Rosa made, but it, it bears repeating. Like, There's nothing that the, the countervailing argument, right, is that states see guaranteeing their own integrity uh, as their the fundamental role of government. And when you don't have that, you have things like the American Civil War and uh, you have the two Chechen wars in Russia. And, you know, that leads arguably to some of the greatest bloodshed that you could see. And I, to me, when I look at like what's happened since the referendum in Iraq, where you've seen actually even a, an escalated response almost uh, than you might have expected, right? Everybody knew the Kurds wanted to have independence. Everybody knew they're positioning this as a way to gain leverage in their negotiations with Baghdad. And yet it seems like once they went ahead and did it, everybody's taking it more seriously as a threat. And I think it, these are the things that uh, seem to provoke uh, governments to take maximalist action. I think well, okay, another. But, you, we, you, but there, let me let me just 
spin this a little bit, Laura, and then and mm-hmm. and, and and ask you, you you to respond in this context. Uh, Susan at the very beginning said you got to take these things on a case by case basis. So let me just offer up a case that we talked about uh, an episode or two ago here on this uh, podcast, and that is the Kurds. There are somewhere between 28 million and 35 million Kurds out there, the largest group of people on the planet who do not have their own country. If Kurdistan was a country, it would be you know somewhere between Canada and Morocco on the list of countries, uh, you know, third, that which is 38th or 39th out of a couple of hundred. It would actually be a fairly large country. Uh, and there seems to be a fairly substantial movement among them all to want to be independent. Why don't they get that? You know, I, I'm not I'm actually not arguing that I don't think they should get that. I, I think it's a. I mean, obviously, it's extraordinarily complicated how that happens. Right. I mean, I think it's not just the what here, but the how. Um, and and in these cases, right, you have all those all of those um, the people you just talked about, but they're also not sort of a monolithic group. I mean, even within the Kurds, you have a lot of different factions and divisions. Um, would that sort of hang together as a functional Kurdistan? Um, well, wait a second. The same argument could have been made about the. 13 colonies of the United States. Totally. And that's why I said I'm not necessarily weighing in that I think it shouldn't happen. But I'm saying that I do think that if you are going to be having these kinds, you know, if you in the context of these referenda, it's important to think through the how. How is it going to be a functioning state? Not just the should it and what would it be? You know, I I think that's a really important question to be asking. Well, I think I think that is an important question to be asking. But, you know, I get part of the problem is that there are power centers. You know, the reason that states that have broken away suddenly become advocates of national sovereignty is that people are in charge of those states and interest groups are in charge of those states. And they say, well, hey, wait a minute, let's not change this again. We're doing just fine off of this. And in Spain, they're doing fine. And in the UK, they know they'd be less without Scotland and in Iraq and in Syria and in Turkey, they all think, well, gee, you know, if the Kurds broke off, we would be less than we are and they have oil and so forth. And so the, the, the question is, how do we balance this out in a way that's fair and not just pragmatic? Susan? You know, I, the answer is we don't know. I mean, you know, there's no – you can't just design a system for handling something like this and then apply it, right? I mean, that's the classic international relations problem uh, is that – uh, each of these events takes on their own logic and there are frames of reference that people have. But look at many of the the frozen conflicts I, I keep thinking of in the former Soviet space when we're talking about this. Why did Russia invade Georgia in 2008? Uh, because ostensibly, uh, you know, going to aid the breakaway Republic of South Ossetia, which, of course, nobody recognized at all in the whole world. And by the way, in this one tiny country of Georgia, that's not even the only breakaway region. And, uh, you know, you have many examples of that. And I I just, I I think it's, the problem is, is that we can't design a system around this because in many ways, those are not about these grand sweeping people's uh, inalienable rights to self-determination. It's that 
set of stories is much more a set of stories about what has Russian uh, uh, foreign policy been since the breakup of the Soviet Union. It's, it's much more about, well, how does Russia recreate what it thinks of it as a, as a sort of safety and strategic depth uh, since they lost the, the empire that came with the Warsaw Pact, things like that. And so to me, I, I just – I feel like it's, it's, it's kind of a fun exercise to talk about inalienable rights. But many, if not most of these issues that we're talking about don't, don't actually tend to revolve around them. I also think, David, coming back to your point about, you know, is this just because established states have people in power and they want to hold on to that? And there's certainly something to that. But I also want to go back to Susan's point from the beginning about sort of putting this in the broader context of the trends we're seeing around the world about people feeling greater dislocation, you know, less sense of community. I think another element that we're seeing here is, you know, part of the reason that we've organized the international community around states is that we believe in institutions that provide for people. There's a compact, a pact between the people and the state that they're going to be providing for them. We see a breakdown of faith in these institutions, of trust in these institutions, of a belief that these institutions provide for people. And I think that that's a bigger question that we should be asking as well is, you know, is there a way to shore up those institutions and people's faith and trust in them that actually helps hold, you know, keep that stability together rather than further devolving um, to create more and further dysfunctional potentially institutions as we, you know, potentially break up more states. All right. Let me let me shift a little bit here uh, because, you know, we try to cover a variety of developments. And uh, recently there was a, a story that broke in The Atlantic um, by um, – uh, Frank Four and our close friend here, Julia Yaffe, uh, about the connections between Paul Manafort and a Russian oligarch, um, and that Manafort was apparently uh, in debt to the oligarch and seeking to use his position with Trump uh, as a way of getting favor with this guy who as a Russian oligarch, probably not a, a, a terribly easy guy to be on the bad side of. Um, now, you know, this is not the whole of the Russia picture, but you, uh, uh, Susan, know this world very well, and you understand who this guy, Deripaska, is, who is the oligarch, one of Russia's richest men, a guy very close to Putin. And I was just wondering if you had some thoughts on the significance of the fact that Manafort was essentially volunteering to help Trump, apparently with as a goal, trying to curry favor with this Russian oligarch. Well, look, this is terrific reporting. And a lot of people, I think, have rightly focused on trying to understand more the connection between Deripaska and Manafort, because uh, this isn't just some random weird Russia character, right? You know, and I, when we started out, right, it, it's hard, we forget because it's been relentless months uh, of news and the news cycle. But, you know, we started out with sort of Carter Page and does he matter and is he important? Now we're at two people who, who matter. Uh, and Manafort was the chairman of Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, he also had an extremely serious and long-term relationship 
uh, both with the Kremlin's backed political party in Ukraine and with the Russian oligarchs who who funded that, as well as many other projects. He he had run afoul of Oleg Deripaska, and that is why uh, people, interestingly, are now looking at various theories for perhaps he saw leveraging his ties to Donald Trump as a way to get back in Deripaska's good graces. We don't know. That seems to me to be very speculative at this point. But I think it is extremely important. And and in fact, as soon as I heard uh, a few months ago uh, about the Deripaska connection here, uh, that did change my thinking about the story as someone who's paid close attention to Russia throughout. Deripaska is not some random figure in a Russian context. He's somebody who gets you very directly uh, to the heart of power, both economic and political power in Russia, and and they're intertwining and in a way that is is extremely significant. This this must be, to you, Laura, the kind of news that is galling, given the amount of work and time you spent on the Hillary Clinton campaign and the amount of time that was spent trying to say to people, hey, wait a minute, this actually matters. Um, and now, you know, we're seeing, you know, I mean, it seems certain almost that that Manafort and Flynn are going to be indicted, that others will be indicted. Uh, honestly, I think the odds are somewhat greater now that Trump will find new ways to bring himself down beyond and above the Russia way. Uh, but the more we learn about this, the uglier it gets. And I was just wondering, in retrospect, having lived through all of this, how you view it. So we were tracking the connection between Manafort and Deripaska well over a year ago and trying to flag it for people to look into. And um, I'm certainly glad (laughs) that at this point, um, a year after we uh, had been raising alarm bells, that um, finally we are starting to get facts out. Um, I could say a lot along those lines, but let me just actually kind of pivot to to a point that I can make more constructively, which is that oh, you I, know, this, I don't think you're <laughs> listening to this show enough. There's no compulsion. To no, be no, 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 no. But I do think that this is really important because we um, there's a lot of really good work being done looking at what happened. And that's really, really important. But we also can't lose sight of the fact that it is not just a past tense problem that these activities are still continuing in the United States today, that Russia is still attempting to influence our media conversation, our social media conversation. They're certainly engaging in cyber activities. I think there's a whole host. I mean, in the the Manafort-Deripaska connection, we're seeing some of the financial dealings potentially. I think that there's a whole host there still to be exploited. But what I really hope is that, you know, um, while – Many of us were flagging this, you know, for quite some time. Um, I do hope that this becomes the lesson that we don't stop looking at this and that we understand how this is continuing to happen and will happen in the future so that we can stop it. Corey, how do you view these developments? Do they change your view in any material way? Do they offer up some new insight or do they only confirm what you already knew? Well, I was genuinely shocked that Manafort, by the reporting, Manafort appeared to be trading access to to the campaign in return for negation of his debts to foreign business people. That's so clearly a violation, not just of ethics, but of the Federal Election Commission's guidelines 
that it looks to me like he's either going to turn state's evidence or he's going to go to prison for a very long time. Um, and, and I'm happy with either of those outcomes, uh, because, you know, the, the number of grifters around and possibly including the president are, are one of the really kind of tawdry things, um, about our current political moment. And I would really, really like to get back to a time where I, since I am not a professor of law at Georgetown Law School, like our dear esteemed Rosa, I would like to once again become ignorant of things like the emoluments clause. <laughs> and, and while I realize it's probably good for civics in America that I have to know about it, uh, it seems to me that, that cleaning out the Augean stables of the grifters around President Trump and reestablishing that, you know, it's called public service for a reason, which means you don't get to take private planes when you are on the public business unless you pay for them yourself. And you don't get to trade access to uh, people running for office to foreign business people as a way to zero out your financial obligation, we need to just bring this stuff to a screeching halt. And and the legal system seems to me a really good way to do that. Wait a minute, Rosa, I'm confused. Aren't emoluments something you find in oil of Olay? <laughs> I th- yes, I, they're I very thought, good for your skin, David. That's what I thought. I thought that's why I have such a baby, babyish a complexion. complexion. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it, one of the things that happened uh, between the last podcast we did and this podcast is a member of the cabinet quit for doing something uh, that would be unconscionable in any cabinet in terms of use of private planes. Uh, of course, several other people in the cabinet also did that. Um, and uh, we also got more detail on the costs of things like Trump family vacations, which cost almost as much as all the plane flights this guy took. Um, and I saw an article or a tweet or, you know, graffiti on a building someplace that said that this was the most corrupt administration ever because of all the people who've left, because of the reasons some of them left, because of what's pending. Uh, is it early to make a, a, an assertion like that? And how long do we have to wait? I don't know. Uh, that's Corey's department comparing it to the many other corrupt administrations of the past. Uh, uh, it certainly seems pretty corrupt, and I, I can't answer your question, David, but I will give you one one anecdote. My older daughter, uh, along with uh, hundreds of other Washington, D.C. high school students, participated in a uh, protest about the, the Trump's decision on DACA, uh, the Dreamers' decision, uh, a couple weeks ago, and she and, and hundreds of other D.C. school children went out into the street uh, to protest, and they went all the way to the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., where she saw and photographed, this is a true story, not, not, not fake news, not made up, uh, someone staying in the Trump Hotel put a big sign in their window that uh, pointed to, to face the protesters, and the sign said, peasants. Uh, <laughs> and they all stood there in their Make America Great Again t-shirts um, <laughs> waving their peasant sign at the protesters. So I will leave you with that image. You know, that's really funny when people do it. Um, 
until the peasants start revolting. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Well, isn't that a little right. bit what happened? <laughs> Guys? Um, my favorite act of civil disobedience these days is whoever it is who keeps uh, using a slide projector or a projector of some kind. Oh, yes, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> to project onto President Trump's hotel in Washington various sorts of political statements. <laughs> Whoever that person is, thank you. It's awesome. It's genius. <laughs> so let me, uh, as we get closer towards the end of this episode, pick up one other thing that's uh, happened in the past few days uh, that doesn't seem to have a foreign policy context, but, but I think that it does. Um, and that is the uh, appalling uh, gun violence that took place in Las Vegas uh, where a guy from nearby Las Vegas went up into a hotel room with a large number of rifles, some weapons that were semi-automatic or automatic, a large number of rounds, killed dozens and dozens of people in the largest mass shooting in American history, injured hundreds of people, and immediately thereafter triggered the debate that always follows these things and always results in no action at all. And it struck me as I was listening to this that the United States, you know, while we look for villains everywhere else in the world, um, is probably looking in the wrong place. And that, you know, Abraham Lincoln once said a long time ago in his Lyceum speech when he was 28 years old that the danger we have to look for is at home. And if anybody's going to bring us down, it's going to be us. And, you know, 80 Americans have been killed by terrorists since 9-11. Uh, and more people have died um, uh, of gun violence in the past six months than were killed in the wars to, to fight that terrorism in Afghanistan or in Iraq by a lot. And in fact, the old saw is, remains true, which is that more people have died of gun violence since 1968 than have died in every American war uh, in U.S. history, including the Civil War. Um, and the, you know, the, the question in my mind is, are we really waging a war against ourselves? And, and I go take it a step further. We're, we're letting guns kill ourselves. We're letting our uh, infrastructure erode in ways that somebody might want to, you know, see done, you know, by bombing during a war. We're last week without any notice at all. The Congress forgot to uh, or or for other reasons did not extend health care for nine million children. It seems like we're at war with ourselves. Um, and doing a lot of damage, damage that nobody else could do. And I just thought I'd take a round of, round the panel to get their view on the, the broader sort of national security consequences of developments like this and our failure to respond to them. Let me start with you, Susan. Well, you know, I, I thought as the news of this first came out, actually back to Donald Trump's American carnage inauguration speech. And, you know, if you project that forward into the future as opposed to it being a backward-looking vision of a country that some of us didn't really recognize. Uh, you know, you have uh, Puerto Rico being drowned and in some ways are seeming indifferent to it. You have this incident. You have, uh, you know, a feeling of of unraveling. But it's, it's also a reminder to me that that's what part of America sees. And, you know, the, the division and the alternate narratives are never going to be 
more hardened than they are over the issue of guns and how to understand this kind of violence. Why do I say that, even though it's just beginning to play out? Because it's played out so many times before. And, uh, you know, we know how it plays out. And what we think on this radio program is is very different than what the people in Red America think. And so, you know, to me, I I fear that this is going to be an utterly unconstructive cycle that we've seen before. Laura? Um, I share Susan's fears. Let me also just add to the depressing list there, um, the criminal justice system um, and and the different – we can talk about the different views in, in Red America also being very conscious of the you know white privilege that all five of us on this um, – on this broadcast, Carrie, you know, there's a there's a different um, experience um, across racial lines that continues in the United States that certainly the president has himself um, many, many times tried to fan and exploit most recently in the NFL um, controversy. And so, you know, in the foreign policy frame, I mean, it's a it's a it's a, you know, trite um, <laughs> statement. But, you know, America is strongest abroad when we're strong at home. I mean, there is no question about that and that our strong you know, domestic policy has to be a bedrock for a strong foreign policy. It's it's difficult to lead um, abroad when we're so entangled at home. It's difficult to have a strong, um, you know, a strong projection of values when we are arguing about them at home. Um, when we can't get our infrastructure right, it's hard to see how we um, can have you know continue to to invest in a and convince people of the strength of our military. I mean, these are all tied together inherently. So I do think that it's it's completely related and is going to really begin to take, if it hasn't already, take a serious toll on America's global leadership in addition to all the other damage being done to America's global leadership today. Corey? Uh, so I have a couple of reactions. The first is just heartsick to realize that an American took the life of more Americans than the battle for Fallujah did in Iraq. You know, mm. in the space of two hours, 58 Americans were killed and 420-something injured. That's the same amount that the Battle of Fallujah took for us. And and I think we, as a society, should should really take your point seriously, David, that, that we need to think about public safety um, in different ways than we are thinking about public safety. Uh, second thing is that uh, these are such enervating times. Our politics are so febrile. The president is encouraging and whipping up the worst tendencies in American politics and in American public life in a way that I think um, I it's it would be unfair to suggest there's a causal relationship, but there's clearly a higher sense of public enervation than I think we would have if we had different leaders in this country. And, and we as voters have the ability to fix this and should fix this. Rosa, I know, you know, as a sometime police officer, you have strong feelings about this. Uh, one of the things that seems to be clear, despite uh, arguments by gun control advocates, the contrary, is that where you have stronger gun control laws, you have fewer victims of gun violence. 
Um, what is your view on this? That is my view on this. No, I, I mean, <laughs> I see that Bill O'Reilly, uh, formerly of Fox News, uh, has come out with a little blog post saying that uh, massacres like these are the price of freedom, um, which is a pretty heavy price. And I don't I you know, it's a pretty funny sort of freedom. Uh, you know, it's the freedom to carry around weapons that serve no discernible purpose other than offensive killing of other human beings. You know, that, that we don't know the details yet on exactly what kinds of weapons uh, the Las Vegas shooter had, although the latest reports I've seen uh, suggest that he had 19 different rifles. But these are these are not weapons of self-defense um, and nobody really needs 19 of them. Uh, you know, the, the record, unless you're, unless you are a big believer in coincidence, uh, and want to write off, uh, the incredibly tight correlation in many countries around the globe between gun regulation and gun homicides as nothing but, nothing but coincidence, um, you know, the evidence is extremely compelling. And this is something I've, I've written about before, uh, including in foreign policy. And I, I recently retweeted a piece I wrote a few years back after the Navy Yard shootings on, you know, we, we have this weird fetishistic approach to the Second Amendment, our interpretation of which is very much informed by years of NRA lobbying rather than anything else. Uh, and it's incredibly self-destructive. We have four and a half percent of the people of the world and we have half of the guns of the world. Uh, we end up in the top 22 industrial nations uh, being responsible for 80 percent of the homicides, 80%, 90% of the homicides involving women, 92% of the homicides involving uh, teenagers or young people under the age of, of 24. We're killing ourselves. And this is a conscious choice by the people of the United States of America to accept the arguments, such as the one that Rosa was just alluding to, made by the gun lobby, who have a financial uh, uh, investment in this, and people who seek their support and mouth parrot their uh, slogans uh, without giving it much thought. And every single day in the United States of America, there is a mass uh, murder involving weapons, uh, um, um, you know, a, 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 a mass attack. And it, it actually happens more than once a day now. Uh, more people have died of gun violence in the United States since January of 2016 then died in the Vietnam War. And people were in the streets protesting the Vietnam War and it nearly tore the country apart. Uh, and here this happens and immediately there's an argument from one side saying, well, you can't talk about it too close to the event. Uh, and the other side tends to go away quietly and not seek to do what's necessary to produce change. And literally 30,000 people die every year, 100,000 people are injured every year because of our unwillingness to take action at home. Uh, and if there were a threat like this from overseas, we would spend hundreds of billions of dollars to mobilize to protect ourselves from it. Uh, that's national security too, and that doesn't get viewed in that context. But if we don't fix it, I guarantee you it's gonna be soon before somebody close to each of you who's out there listening uh, is affected by this and not in a good way. Uh, that's a pretty down note on which to end this episode of Deep State Radio, but 
you know, we have to tackle these issues. Uh, and uh, we are glad that you join us for these discussions and find these discussions valuable. And we look forward to having you join us again uh, in future weeks. Hopefully those discussions will be as good as this discussion and the great guests that we had this week, including uh, Susan Glasser and Laura Rosenberger, and of course, Corey Shockey and Rosa Brooks. Uh, so thank you all very much. And we'll talk to you again very soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.